Welcome to The Blind Side. News and information from a blindness perspective. Here's Jonathan Moser. Goodness. <coughs> Sorry. I really wasn't asleep. Welcome. Good to have you with us. And also, can I say thank you for an amazing year because The Blind Side has now been around for a year. It was a year ago that I came to the view that we really needed some program in the blind community that looked at a range of issues, not just technology. When technology came up in a newsworthy context, we would cover it, but also looking at a range of political and societal issues as they affect blind people. We began this journey that we called The Blind Side on Mushroom FM, and due to overwhelming feedback we received when people said, look, we think that this sort of thing is better in a podcast where people can consume it in their own time, at their own pace, and skip through it and speed it up, we moved it pretty soon after The Blind Side began to a full-time podcast format, and here we are. I really appreciate everybody's support. It's amazing the number of downloads that we get every single week. It's become one of the biggest podcasts in the blind community, and I really am truly grateful and humbled for your ongoing support. So what do we have on the podcast this week? Well, we have a few program notes, but after that, we're going to be talking about a topic that is really important to many of us, and that is sleep. Why is it so difficult for so many blind people to maintain a regular sleeping schedule? And the fact that we can't retain one is often really debilitating in terms of holding down a job if we're fortunate enough to have one and just keeping our social lives and interactions with our friends and family under control. So we will be talking about that. Now, before we get there, though, let me tell you that as of next week, we are beginning a series that will be of particular interest to New Zealand listeners or to those who have an interest in current affairs beyond their own country, if you're outside of New Zealand. New Zealand is going to the polls. We have a general election on the 23rd of September. And as part of the Blind Side's mission to cover issues from a blindness perspective in a way that mainstream media does not, we are next week going to be beginning a series of interviews with spokespeople from political parties in New Zealand. We have reached out to all of the political parties who are registering in the polls, whether they choose to participate, of course, is up to them. But we have a number of interviews in the can already from the political parties who want to talk with us about disability issues. So if you are in New Zealand and you know someone who's interested in disability issues, we are going to go beyond blindness with these interviews, then do let the disability community in New Zealand know that we are going to do this series of interviews that you can subscribe to the Blindside podcast feed and really have an in-depth discussion about disability issues as they affect the general election campaign here in New Zealand in a way that you are not going to hear anywhere else. We really look forward to bringing those interviews to you beginning next week. And speaking of next week, a final reminder that on Wednesday, the 9th of August 2017 at 7pm Eastern US time, because this is an item of interest to our US listeners, Mosin Consulting will be launching its first webinar and we're honoured to have Greg Makeley of the Family Resource Network Centre of New Jersey. He's going to be talking on social security work incentives as they pertain to SSI and Medicaid and SSDI and Medicare beneficiaries. Now, for many job seekers with disabilities, concerns surrounding social security benefits can be one of the reasons for reluctance in accepting or not accepting employment. We'll be looking at issues such as how will a job affect my benefit? How much can I earn and still continue to receive my benefit? If I lose my job, how long will it take to receive the benefits again? Are there blindness-specific expenses I can count and still get benefits? These concerns are often compounded by the frustration and confusion in getting answers from the Social Security Administration or benefit specialists in the United States. With this webinar, we'll answer these questions and others. Now, if you are already a part of the Job Club, which you will be if you've purchased Bonnie Mosin's excellent book from the Mosin Consulting Store, It's Off to Work We Go!, then you'll be able to participate in this webinar for free as part of that job club. If you are not a part of the job club and you would like to attend this particular webinar, then you can purchase attendance in the Mosin Consulting Store for just $10. US To do that, you can head on over to mosin.org slash SSA. That's M-O-S-E-N dot org slash SSA. 
that'll entitle you to attend the webinar and obtain a download of it afterwards if you can't attend or you want to hear it again. Participants can attend by telephone, but we're encouraging you to use the fully accessible Zoom cloud meeting app for the PC, the Mac, iOS, and Android. And of course, we've talked about Zoom on the Blindside podcast before. If you would like to hear a demonstration of how easy it is to attend a Zoom meeting, you can go to mosin.org slash Zoom for that. That's mosin.org slash Z-O-O-M. And if you prefer, you can also purchase the full book on Zoom Cloud Meetings from that page. Now, we realize everyone who may want to participate on the day may not be able to. So if you're going to purchase the webinar for download and you won't be there to ask your question in person, you can email Bonnie with the question. She's coordinating this webinar. And Bonnie's email address is bonnie, that's B-O-N-N-I-E, at mosin.org. That's bonnie at mosin.org. There's been a lot of excitement and interest in this webinar and appreciation of the fact that somebody is trying to make sense of what is a very complicated regime. So we look forward to your attendance. Head on over to mosin.org slash SSA to purchase attendance at the webinar on the 9th of August. It's time to hear from this week's featured guest on The Blind Side. When I was a kid, I'd go through phases where I'd find myself wide awake in the middle of the night and uncomfortably tired in the middle of the day, and there was absolutely nothing that I could do to stop myself from drifting off. At times, I seemed to be the one who was blamed for this by school teachers, as if I deliberately chose to wake up at all hours. When I was a little older, I learned about the possible benefits of melatonin for blind people with irregular sleeping patterns like me. Just before the ultimate melatonin antidote came into my own life, my young children waking up at all hours. Well, these days, I've learned to use melatonin in a way that seems to work for me. If I really need to be awake and alert at a given time, I can generally do it. My 30 minutes of meditation and another 30 minutes of exercise daily, as well as giving up alcohol, have all helped a lot. But I'm also fortunate to be living the dream, if you'll pardon the expression. I work from home, often with clients on the other side of the world who love the fact that I'm not bothered by working with them in the middle of my night. The majority of blind people don't have that luxury and they're desperate to find a way to be awake at the right time, on schedule, and also, of course, to enjoy the social benefits of that. There is a name for this now. It is Non-24 Sleep-Wake Disorder, and a lot of research has gone into it to talk with me about sleep in general and the challenges that many blind people face with sleep in particular. I'm joined by Professor Stephen Lockley, who is an Associate Professor of Medicine at Harvard Medical School. He's a neuroscientist with an interest in sleep circadian disorders, and he spent a lot of time examining the issue of blind people and sleep. It's really great to have you back with us, Stephen. It's been a long time since we've talked, and I'm hoping there may have been some advances in the field. So thank you for joining us. Uh, Thanks, Jonathan, for inviting me. Yes, there have been some changes, so this is a great time to to talk. I'm always interested to learn how people get into the things that they do. So what interested you about the whole topic of sleep in the first place, that you've devoted your professional life to this? Well, like many things, it was an accident, really. I didn't... uh, have a strong plan on, on working in any particular area when I was trying to find a PhD project, but was offered the opportunity to study the impact of different types of blindness on circadian rhythms at the University of Surrey in the UK. And uh, they, they explained the uh, plan to me, the proposal, and it sounded to me uh, like a very interesting uh, study. And so I embarked on that for my PhD and then postdoc and have, have been working on that really ever since. And so, yes, it was just an, an interesting area which I didn't know anything about before I started but has has really been fascinating. Now I'd like to drill down and talk a lot about blind people and uh, sleep in particular but of course sleep in general is one of those issues which seems to be a bit of a hot button topic these days. People seem to now be more aware than ever that we're not getting enough of it. So could we talk about that in general? Smartphones seem to get a lot of the blame, that we get very busy with our devices, that we leave by our bed, we reach for them the moment we have a, a momentary bit of consciousness there, and it seems to be affecting us in a very negative way. That's certainly the case. There seems to be an increase in sleep problems across society in general, and this is due to a number of reasons, and probably because we are trying to squeeze too much into our days. 
Uh, we, we lead very active lives. People try to, to do too much, possibly. And the one thing that seems fairly easy to, to give away is the time for sleep. And so with uh, long work hours, people having to, to work several jobs sometimes, with family commitments, with children, um, it's often very difficult to find the right amount of time for sleep. And then technology makes that worse. And so the ability to be switched on 24-7, to be looking at work emails at any time, uh, even socially, uh, to, to be on electronic devices at any time, just adds to that pressure uh, to squeeze out sleep. And for at least uh, for sighted individuals, th there's a bigger problem of the light that's emitted from these electronic devices because they emit uh, blue light, short wavelength light preferentially, and that blue light we've shown is most alerting to the brain. And so if you're using a device prior to bed, for example, you're waking the brain up at a time when you're trying to, to calm the brain down for sleep. And so the devices we use in the evening uh, are certainly having a negative impact on sleep and our ability to fall asleep, even more than a TV used to, to, to do. We used to worry about a TV before bed, uh, but the electronic devices that are right in front of your eyes are much more problematic. And so I think it's a combination of, of social pressures, work pressures, uh, trying to do too much, and then uh, inappropriate use of these electronic devices before bed. You must be feeling pretty pleased then that there's been some acknowledgement of this on the part of the cell phone manufacturers and their software because both Android and iOS now have this night shift mode where the light changes as you're preparing for sleep. They, they, they have, and, and that, that is a step forward, although it's not clear how good those uh, changes are at changing the biological impact of light. I don't know of any studies that have, in fact, uh, shown a benefit of that yet, but it, but it is a step in the right direction. But, of course, the real answer is to not use them at all. Um, all light after dusk is, is unnatural. We've evolved to, to have light exposure in the day and no light exposure at night. And so any time we use light after dusk is, is having a negative impact on our biology. And, and that, of course, means electric light, whether it's from a light bulb, from a TV, from a, from a device. All of those uh, photons are being detected by the eyes and having an impact. And so, yes, it, it's a step forward, but it, it really isn't the answer. We need to be putting down the devices for, for as long as possible, up to several hours before sleep, uh, so we don't have this negative effect on sleep into the night. We've got some challenges as a species, I think, in terms of how connected we are now, because I've been reading some interesting studies lately about the psychology of social media, uh, Facebook and Twitter in particular, where people sometimes seem to get a whole level of aggression behind a keyboard. Perhaps they feel that the keyboard gives them some degree of anonymity and they behave horribly. We, we behave horribly to one another. And so what can often happen is that you've got that device, you've been in the middle of some sort of dreadful exchange. So this may not even be work-related, but you wake up ever so slightly, you wonder whether somebody's come back at you with a retort or something like that. You pick up the phone, you read the responses, you're wide awake again. No, certainly. That, that does have a, a big impact on sleep. We know uh, if you're expecting to be woken, for example, you will sleep uh, lightly, you won't sleep as deeply. Um, and certainly anticipating a response uh, won't allow you to relax and won't allow you to, uh, to, to get into those uh, periods of deep sleep. One of the things that sleep deprivation can cause is a greater degree of irritability, uh, a greater degree of anger, more risk-taking behavior. And so it's not to say that uh, all of these types of, of internet exchanges are driven by that, but being sleep deprived can't help that and can't help the quality of those exchanges. Because when we are sleep deprived, we are more irritable, more angry, uh, and less tolerant of others. And so there may be this sort of negative uh, feedback where we, we don't sleep enough, uh, and so we make more comments, so we feel worse, so we make more comments, which then affects our sleep, and so on and so forth. So uh, certainly taking a break from, from devices and having a clear window between the end of the day and, and the time for bed, uh, where you could do relaxation exercises, you could meditate, uh, have a hot bath and do things which relax you, uh, it's got to be very good for a number of reasons. 
Yes, I interviewed someone a couple of weeks ago who's a hypnotherapist, and I personally find that helps me a great deal too, to get some sort of positive hypnosis that causes me to focus away from professional or personal pressures and just drift off into a pretty nice sleep. And I definitely have found, and of course it's purely anecdotal, but I find that the quality of my sleep is better when I use a hypnosis to help me focus the mind or, or, or in a way unfocus it before going to sleep. That really does seem to help. Yes, anything that people find relaxes them will be good. And of course, there'll be different uh, different solutions for different people. But people can find for themselves something which they know relaxes them. It can be uh, listening to a book. It can be a hot, hot warm bath, a non-caffeinated warm drink. Uh, it can be you know light stretching. It can be meditation. It can be breathing exercises. Uh, anything that will calm people down in the 30 minutes to an hour or so before bed, making that split from day to night. That will help us fall asleep more easily and have better quality uh, and deeper sleep earlier in the night. How good are most human beings at, at being their own alarm clock? I find it interesting that if there is a, a, a time where I have to be up and I have a commitment every Monday morning that requires me to be up at 4.30 a.m. without fail, and I often find that I will start to surface about 10 minutes before the alarm goes off and i'm wondering whether that's some sort of knack that a lot of people have to to, to somehow be their own alarm clock yeah often people will report that they can do that and I, I don't know of any studies that have really explored that in detail certainly if you are anticipating being woken or worried about not waking up on time that will mean you have lighter sleep which means it may be uh, more likely that you will wake up closer to that time um, and so it's really not advisable to worry too much about that because you're not going to get as good a sleep as, as you could uh, if you relied on the alarm. But it's certainly true that our circadian system, our 24-hour biological clock, is a very strong signal uh, to the sleep uh, and wake patterns that we have. And so if there is a, a pattern that you, you keep to, um, the clock synchronizes to that uh, and will try and keep that time pretty regularly. Now, for most of us, it's light that, that is required to synchronize the clock. But there are some, some individuals who have a clock that's close to 24 hours naturally that can be synchronized by other things. We, we call them non-photic or non-light time cues. Uh, and so a proportion of people can be affected by that, which may be one of the ways in which uh, people find themselves waking up at the same time every day. And is the same old advice true that you should try to get seven to eight hours of sleep a night? Yes, I, I would say maybe even a little bit more. The American Academy of Sleep Medicine has, has recommended a minimum of seven hours per night for adults. Um, and I would try and aim for a little bit more than that. Because when we go to bed, we don't sleep 100% of the time. And so it takes us a little bit uh, of time to fall asleep, and then you will wake up through the night without really realizing it. And so you want to really have you know, probably eight hours in bed to try and get seven, seven and a half hours of sleep, or even more than that if you really want to get eight hours a night and feel as alert as possible. Is there any merit to the suggestion that you shouldn't do any non-sleep-associated tasks from bed, you know, curl up in bed on a winter day and work on your laptop or stuff like that because somehow your body has to associate the ritual, if you will, of getting into bed with preparing for sleep? Yeah, that can be a problem, particularly in people who have insomnia as a sleep disorder. And so insomnia can mean just not get enough sleep, and, and that happens to us all at uh, some time or another. But insomnia as a clinical disorder is often associated with those poor behaviors. And one of those behaviors was, was to have a TV in the bedroom, uh, which means you're conditioning yourself to go to sleep with the sound, with the light, uh, with, with, uh, with that in the room. And, and that could also be caused by something else. And so people who have insomnia part of the treatment is to take away those types of stimulants from, from the, the bedroom and only have the bedroom uh, focusing on sleep. And so that is a good idea for all of us to do, even if you don't have a clinical sleep disorder. And of course, you have the light issue uh, that we discussed earlier, uh, if you're using a laptop or, or in the bedroom as well, because if you're giving yourself that light pulse before bed and you have light perception, then you, you're alerting the brain and making it harder to fall asleep. And so, yes, keeping the bedroom as a sanctuary for sleep um, gives you the best chance of getting good sleep and not getting into any bad habits that might turn eventually into a clinical disorder. You get a lot of people who talk about their 
lack of need for sleep as if it's a badge of honor. You know, businessmen and politicians who say I can get by with three or four hours of sleep a night for a long time. Are there people who can get by on just three or four hours of sleep without some sort of ramifications? No, we don't think so. Um, and so there's a few reasons why why people will, will say things like that. Obviously, there is this this macho image that you know, we can sleep when we're dead. Uh, sleep is for wimps, this idea that you're somehow better and stronger if you can survive on a small amounts of, of sleep. Um, but that really doesn't stand up. When you take those types of people and bring them into a lab, they end up sleeping as much as everybody else. Uh, and so they are forcing themselves to sleep a short amount of time, not because that's all they need, but that's because all they, that's all they give themselves. And they're definitely impaired. Um, at three or four hours a night, you know, you, you really have some quite serious uh, impairments in performance. Uh, and the brain doesn't really tell us that uh, in, in our subjective ratings. So we're very bad at self-assessing our level of sleepiness. And it's a little bit like a drunk brain. The drunk brain can't make good judgments about itself, uh, about behaviors and about things to do. A sleepy brain is very similar. A sleepy brain doesn't know how sleepy you are. And so then you make poor decisions uh, and think you're doing better than you are. And so when people compare performance objectively in, in a test versus the subjective ratings of sleepiness, we often over uh, overestimate how well we're doing and um, while the performance is declining. And that's particularly uh, e easy to see in people who are chronically sleep deprived. Um, if you only get three, four, five, six hours a night, over time, your performance gets worse and worse but your subjective ratings level off and you, and you think you're doing better than you are. So, uh, that, no, three or four hours a night is really not sustainable and, and isn't, uh, it, it isn't really something people would do if they allowed themselves to sleep more. It's not really a good solution. I love reading some of the geeky blogs that cover interesting life hacks. And one blog I read a while ago talked about a concept called polyphasic sleep, which interested me as somebody who can't consistently um, sleep for seven to eight hours a night a lot, although I do better these days. This interested me because essentially it acknowledges that you can get eight to 10 hours of sleep a day, but not necessarily all at once. Does that work for some people or are there dangers in doing that? It's not something that we, we recommend uh, because it isn't just about the duration of sleep that, that matters. Of course, we want to get a certain amount of sleep per night, but it's also the quality of the sleep. And by that, I mean the type of sleep you have uh, when you sleep. And you can divide sleep uh, broadly into two types of sleep. There is REM sleep or rapid eye movement sleep where you can, you can measure eye movements in people who have eyes, uh, but also uh, measure uh, muscle uh, paralysis essentially in the rest of the body um, and so REM sleep is tends to be in the second half of the night and then we have non-REM sleep uh, in the first half of the night which is the deep sleep that we, we get that helps us recover our alertness when we wake up. Now those two types of sleep are controlled by different mechanisms. The amount of deep sleep that you have is really based on how long you've been awake and how tired you are. So the longer you've been awake in the daytime the more deep sleep you'll have at the start of the night. And so these people who are doing these polyphasic type of sleep patterns won't be building up a lot of sleep pressure. So they're unlikely to have a lot of deep sleep uh, in, in those, those multiple shorter sleep patterns. The bigger concern, though, is, is REM sleep. REM sleep is controlled by the circadian clock and only occurs at a certain time of the night. And that's usually in the second half of the night if you're trying to sleep at a normal time. And so if you don't sleep during that part of the night, you're not going to get REM sleep at other parts of the day. And so people who are doing these types of polyphasic patterns are likely depriving themselves of REM sleep um, until they get very, very sleep deprived. And then you get abnormal REM episodes occurring in sleep where people have very vivid dreams and, uh, and have very unusual sleep patterns. But if you've got to that point, you know, you know it's, not been, it's not been a good thing in terms of sleep. So it isn't something we advise at all. Uh, and for those people who have non-24-hour sleep-wake disorder, who, who inadvertently end up with, with often multiple sleep episodes a day, it doesn't work uh, for those patients. People feel, feel bad uh, in doing that. And that's why we've done studies to try and develop uh, uh, treatments for that disorder, because it is very disruptive to have these multiple sleeps a day. You're not getting the right sleep quality.
And that segues us very nicely into talking specifically about the problem that I and many other blind people listening to this podcast have. And uh, it has a name now, non-24 sleep-wake disorder. What is it? And how many of us in the blind community do we think are affected by it? Yeah, so this is a disorder which, which has had various names uh, over the years. It was, it was formally notified as, as a clinical sleep disorder back in the 70s, but there were studies going back to the 1940s. Uh, showing that people with different types of visual impairment uh, have sleep have sleep problems. Um, and so non-24 hour sleep-wake disorder is the long-winded way of saying that people can't maintain a 24-hour regular sleep pattern. And what what happens is the, the sleep uh, runs on its own time, its own internal time, which is a non-24 hour rhythm. Now I'll explain why that happens. Um, so we all have a clock in the brain and our clocks are close to, but not exactly 24 hours. So if I was to live in a cave without light, my clock wouldn't be able to reset itself with light, and it would start to run on its own time. And the average is around 24 and a half hours, we found in blind people, which means the clock is trying to get you to go to sleep half an hour later every day. So if I live in a cave without light, my clock would send me to sleep half an hour later, day after day after day. But if I have eyes and I have uh, the connection from the eye to the brain that synchronizes the clock, then light automatically resets that clock and keeps us on a 24-hour day. But unfortunately, if people have either lost their eyes and can't detect the light, or there is damage to the pathway from the eye to the brain, then the, the, the clock is unable to sense the light and then runs on its own internal time. And so the sleep pattern is not random, uh, although it can often feel that way uh, because um, uh, if people have a particularly uh, rapid clock, it doesn't feel like much of a pattern. But it's, it's being driven by this internal clock, which is uh, having a period of, of about 24 and a half hours, making a sleep later and later every day. And so that's what happens in, in more than half of people who have no light perception. Um, we find that they have this non-24 hour or non-entrained clock where their, their internal rhythms in, in hormones like melatonin or cortisol or temperature uh, and their sleep and their mood and their performance and everything we measure ends up running on this non-24 hour day. Is it easy for a blind person to self-diagnose? I mean, how do I know if I have this versus just being a poor sleeper generally? It, it, it can be easy for some people, but it's difficult for others. And, and that really is based on your own internal clock. So let me give you some examples. If, if you have an internal clock that's 25 hours, it will take about 25 days to go all the way around the clock because your clock will send you to sleep one hour later every day. And after 24 days, you'll have gone 24 hours. And after 25 days, you'll have gone full circadian cycle. So if you have a 25-day cycle like that, then it's pretty, it can be pretty straightforward to detect because you'll have about two weeks of good sleep, two weeks of bad sleep, two weeks of good sleep, and so on. But if someone has a clock of, let's say, 24.2 hours, then it's going to take about 120 days to go all the way around the clock. So that's going to be now uh, about four months. And they might have two or three months of pretty good sleep and then one to two months of bad sleep. And that might present itself to, to doctors as insomnia because there's not a clear pattern because very hard to see that pattern over four or five months as it could be. And so in that case, uh, a doctor might think it's a, a case of insomnia because there's this unexplained uh, month or so of, of sleep problems, which doesn't really follow a pattern. But if people keep a sleep diary, and this is how we've done a lot of our research, if you keep a sleep diary, uh, even over many months, you can often detect a pattern that, uh, that tells us that the disorder is cycle. Now, even if you do the sleep diary, though, not everyone uh, will always have a clear pattern because many other things affect your sleep. And so people use caffeine, which affects your sleep. Uh, people have work schedules and family commitments and, and other things which affect sleep. And so really the gold standard way to measure uh, if you have non-24-hour sleep weight disorder is to measure the hormone melatonin and we do that uh, usually in urine samples in people's homes uh, and people collect samples and then send them to us in the lab. And we look at the timing of that melatonin rhythm and that gives us a very clear signal if the clock is synchronized to 24 hours 
or whether it's synchronized to uh, a different time, say 24 and a half hours. Right, because in a sighted person, when the sun goes down, your brain is get, getting a signal to the pineal gland, I believe it is, which says, okay, the sun's gone down and now it's time to produce melatonin. And that's, that's the signal that essentially a blind person is not getting. So, to some extent. So, so melatonin is produced uh, regardless of whether there's a light-dark cycle. So blind people produce melatonin, even if there's no light input to the brain. And the timing of that melatonin from the pineal gland is determined by the, the clock in the hypothalamus. And that clock is called the suprachiasmatic nucleus, a uh, long, uh, long word, but the SCN of the initials. Um, and that's the part of the brain that, that has these clock cells in it. So you'll still produce melatonin if you're totally blind and not synchronized, but you won't be able to synchronize it to 24 hours. So what the light-dark cycle does is essentially reset that clock every day. It resets that clock in the brain and tells the brain this is you know this is morning or this is evening and, and reset to this time and so you'll still have melatonin if you're not entrained but it will be on this non 24 hour pattern beyond this feeling of perpetual jet lag if you will which i think is a way that i would describe this are there long term health effects beyond feeling sleep deprived of this non 24 we, we haven't found any, but we haven't really looked in, in, in detail for some of those things. So when we've surveyed uh, larger groups of, uh, of blind and visually impaired people, we do find that people with no light perception tend to have a slightly higher BMI, uh, but nothing that's, that's particularly concerning or, or really clinically uh, concerning. Um, and, and we don't really find higher rates of things like uh, diabetes or depression or other disorders uh, at least in our in, in our relatively small surveys, what we have found, and, and we weren't the people to discover this, it, it was shown before uh, we, we looked at it. Um, it does seem that blind women have about a fifty percent reduction in breast cancer risk compared to sighted women, and there are similar data in blind men for prostate cancer risk, and it's, the risk seems to be related by the degree of visual impairment, saying that. Those with total blindness, no light perception at all, tend to have the lowest risk of these hormone-dependent cancers. And, and so there's some discussion and, and some theories about why that is. We think that um, some of the light effects on, on melatonin uh, may be uh, increasing cancer risk in, in women who do shift work uh, and people who don't have regular sleep cycles. Uh, but when you don't have light input to the brain, that risk goes away and, in fact, uh, causes a reduction in, in cancer risk. Um, but, but there haven't really been long-term studies looking at long-term health uh, in people with and without non-24-hour sleep-wake disorder because there haven't been that many people studied with it. You know, probably over um, the last 50 years or so, we've probably studied uh, no more than, than 1,000 people with the disorder. Could that mean then that if you supplement with melatonin to try and deal with this, that you may be potentially reversing that, that low risk? We, we, we don't think so, um, because giving melatonin to shift workers who have a high risk doesn't seem to be a particularly good treatment to, to bring their high risk down. And, and there are other things going on. So shift workers, for example, have um, disruption to their, their internal clocks. They have disruption to sleep. Uh, there are changes in diet. Um, so there are many other things happening with shift workers. It's just that one of the theories uh, is around light and, and the data of reducing risk in blind people it seemed to to support that but it's it's just uh, the epidemiology it's an association we don't really have any cause or effect uh, at the moment I listen very carefully to your description of, of this because it fits in with something I recently learned about, a theory that sleep in blind people may be improved when we receive regular exposure to sunlight, even if we don't have light perception. In other words, that there might be a separation between the sight functions of the eye, which clearly, you know, totally blind people don't have, and the circadian regulation functions of the eye, so that if you do have your eyes, you don't have prosthetic eyes, you may benefit from exposure to sunlight. Could you expand on that? We could. So, so the latter part of what you said, the, the separation of the systems is true. There is a separate system in the eye for sensing light to tell the brain what time of day it is. And it's still in the retina, but it's at the front of the retina in the ganglion cell layer of the retina, whereas our visual system uh, are in the rods and cones at the back of the retina. 
And so we, we know from many, many studies in animals and people that if you lose your, your rods and cones but have an intact ganglion cell layer, those cells can still detect light to send light to the brain and synchronize the clock. And in fact, they're most sensitive to blue light, which is why the blue light coming from devices is concerning because it's stimulating those cells that, uh, that, that tell the brain what time of day it is. But we've only found nine people in the world who have that capability. And, and all but one of them were found here in Boston at uh, our lab here. And, and, and so it's, it's very rare. And it can only happen in people who have disorders of very specifically of the rod and cone layer. And so we've found, for example, people with, with rod cone dystrophies or with retinitis pigmentosa uh, can have this protected uh, ganglion cell layer. But if you have a disorder which has damaged that ganglion cell layer, so glaucoma or optic nerve disease or damage, uh, then you, you won't have this capability because these cells that detect the blue light will also be damaged. And so while it's um, a relatively small number of people we've studied, we estimate it may be uh, as little as 5% of totally blind people uh, and maybe 20% of totally blind people with eyes might have the ability to synchronize their clocks by the light-dark cycle. And, and one way to sort of know for yourself if, if that's happening is you won't have a cyclic sleep disorder because if light is able to synchronize your clock, you don't get non-24-hour sleep-wake disorder because the non-24-hour disorder is caused by a lack of light getting to, the, getting to the brain. So if you're a totally blind person and have normal sleep and don't have an issue with, with synchronization, then it may be light that's synchronizing you, or in a small number of people, it may be these other non-light, non-photic time cues that are doing the job, but something is keeping you on 24 hours. Um, but if, if you don't have that ability, as people with non-24-hour sleep-wake disorder know, uh, it, it's quite noticeable. It, you know, you have sleep problems, you have a lot of daytime sleepiness, trouble sleeping at night. It's not something that, that people uh, tend to mix up. If, if you're sleeping well, it may be light or it may be something other than light that's keeping you in check. Over the last couple of years, I've become acquainted with a group of people, uh, a lot of parents of uh, kids who have the same kind of congenital blind condition that I do. It's very difficult for parents, isn't it? I mean, on, on the in the first place, kids are supposed to get more sleep than adults as they grow. But on the other hand, it, it's very disruptive if you've got little two-year-old junior getting up at 1 a.m., bright as a button, jumping on the rocking horse, doing all those things, and they're just not tired. It must be very, very tough for those parents. It, it must. Uh, it really must be. I mean, it, it shows how strong our circadian system is in regulating sleep because if your body clock is telling you it's daytime, even though it might be 1 a.m. Um, uh, in clock time, then, then the brain is awake. You are awake, and there's very little you can really do to overcome that. Um, and so, yes, this is highly disruptive uh, uh, to many adults as well uh, because it's very hard to plan uh, work hours, school hours, social life, family commitments because you don't really know when you're going to be awake or, or sleepy. Although over time we can establish that pattern and, and give people give people help. I mean, we've even had people say to us that this disorder um, is worse than being blind itself. Which, uh, as a sighted person, you now I find I find a, a very powerful uh, statement. But it really speaks to the disruption of uh, of the non twenty four hour disorder on people's abilities to 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 work, go to school, interact, uh, and lead a normal life. Yes, and I think one of the issues that can be quite scarring for blind people is that, at least in the past, a lot of people that blind kids engage with have no clue about this. And as I said in the beginning of my introduction, it almost felt like a lot of teaching staff were blaming me for feeling so incredibly sleepy during the day. <laughs> I remember resting my head on the Perkins Brailler uh, in 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 a classroom and just nodding off because there was just absolutely nothing I could do to stay awake and there was really no knowledge or sympathy or or anything that anybody could advise at that stage. Yes, and, I, and I'm not sure we're 100 percent there yet, uh, even now, um, in terms of understanding of the link between total blindness and and sleep disorders. Uh, but I think we we have you know help with that. We have tried to to educate. Uh, at least the blind community, and then hopefully that that 
uh, educates the wider public. Um, but it, but it, it is difficult because um, there is this attitude: well, just get on with it. You know, have another cup of coffee, just uh, pull yourself together. Um, but, but you really can't when the biological clock is is driving you to sleep. That's not something you can just uh, just overcome. Uh, and it is like jet lag. I mean, you mentioned jet lag as an analogy. Um, if your body clock is shifting uh, half an hour a day, that's like traveling half a time zone every day. But you never get to the destination. You know, you keep going round and round and round the world. Um, and, and that's the, the debilitating part in that it's this continuous um, uh, shift day after day after day uh, that, that won't stop. And, and I think it's very hard for any of us who don't have that disorder to really understand uh, what it feels like and how difficult it is. Um, but, uh, you know, if we, if we can do more to educate um, uh, carers and particularly people who work with blind children, then, then we should do that because uh, it's not something people can just uh, decide to stop. It's, it's a, a real biological drive. Melatonin is at the heart of all of this. Should I take melatonin supplements? And if so, what's the recommended dosage these days? So there have been uh, some advances recently in treatments for non-24-hour sleep-wake disorder in blind people specifically. And there are, uh, and they're connected. Um, but let me give you a little bit of the history so you understand where, uh, where the second one came from. So uh, studies have been done with melatonin uh, for probably 30 or more years now. And we were able to show back in 2000 that if you take um, a five milligram dose of melatonin at the same clock time every night, that you can synchronize the clocks in, in just over half the individuals uh, with non-24 hour rhythms. And we synchronize their internal clock, which means everything else gets synchronized as well. So the melatonin, the cortisol, the sleep, the mood, everything that the clock controls becomes realigned. We then, um, this is at the University of Surrey, we then tried a 0.5 milligram dose. And that worked as well. In fact, maybe even worked a little bit better, although we don't uh, have the, the power to really dif- differentiate them. So a 0.5 milligram fast-release dose given at 9 p.m. every night, and it has to be given at the same time every night because you're replacing the 24-hour signal lost from light. So it has to be at the same clock time, not just bedtime. Um, That will also synchronize the clock. And work done, similar work done by Alfred Louis and colleagues uh, in Oregon uh, found similar things, and they've even gone to lower doses uh, when they've stepped down from 0.5 to, to even lower doses. So in use of melatonin, um, we, would, we would say, well, choose a dose which, which is around 0.5 or 1, uh, but somewhere in that region, a fast release, but take it at the same time every night. Now, the problem with that advice is that's not approved uh, by the FDA, and melatonin has not been approved by the FDA for this use or gone through any of the safety trials uh, that, that a drug should have. Um, in the U.S., melatonin is a supplement, and so it's essentially unregulated. So you've no idea what you're buying when you buy it over the counter. You, you don't know. In fact, it's not even over the counter. It's, it's just a supplement on the shelf. So you don't know what's in it. You don't know that it's really melatonin. It's often sold in many other things. And there's no physician overseeing that and, and supervising any safety issues. In the rest of the world, melatonin is a prescription-only medication. And then, of course, you do know you're getting melatonin uh, because it's approved. Um, and hopefully, if there's a prescription, there's a physician who has some knowledge of this who can, can help supervise the, the treatment. And so I would recommend the prescription version if you're in a country that has uh, prescription uh, melatonin. Um, but it's really important to take it at the same time every night if you're going to, to use melatonin and work with your physician uh, to make sure he or she knows that you're doing that. Now, in the US and Europe, um, a drug has been approved specifically for non-24 hour sleep rate disorder, uh, a drug called Hetlios, uh, H-E-T-L-I-O-Z. And the, the name for that, the, the drug name for that is, is a drug called Tazimeltion, which is an agonist of melatonin. And so that means it's a drug which acts like melatonin. And I led the clinical trials to show that it worked to entrain the clocks of totally blind people here in the U.S. And we published that in the Lancet uh, magazine, uh, scientific magazine, a couple of years ago. And it was approved by the FDA and then by the European Medicine Agency um, to treat non-24-hour sleep-wake disorder in blind people. 
and it has quite similar entrainment rates. We found in the clinical trial, uh, using very, very strict criteria, that it, it synchronized uh, 20% of the people who, who use the drug. Um, but then when we did a, a view of, uh, did an analysis of a wider data set over a couple of trials, uh, then that entrainment rate goes up to about 57%, just over half. And so, similarly to the original small studies on melatonin, we find that, that over half of people, if they take it at the same time every night, will synchronize their clock and then have the benefits that come with that. And so, uh, if uh, ideally, you would use the, the prescription medication um, that's been approved by the FDA and it's been through all the safety trials, um, whereas melatonin hasn't, uh, because then you you know you've got that um, comfort of knowing that it's been tested appropriately. Whereas even prescription melatonin in many countries uh, hasn't been through the, the safety checks that uh, that a drug uh, normally would if it was being uh, newly approved uh, by an agency. Hedlios is very expensive, is it not? Um, I, I I believe it is. I'm not involved at all in in the pricing of it or uh, in any of the marketing after the clinical trials were finished. We published the paper and, and my involvement with um, the, the drug company and the drug uh, finished. Um, but yes, I, I believe it is. Uh, although in the States, at least, I think most people, most totally blind people would be covered uh, through their Medicare or Medicaid uh, to have access to the drug. Um, but yes, I believe it is uh, quite expensive. Are there any side effects associated with either option, taking good quality melatonin and, and taking Hedlios? So the, the side effect profile is, is pretty similar, um, and they tend there tends to be around five percent or so of people will report a headache uh, the next morning, a sort of a hangover headache um, that often is dose related, at least with melatonin. So lowering the dose uh, can help. Um, some people report nausea. Uh, some people report having more vivid dreams, and that is something that has been reported a few times with, with melatonin. Uh, but no, generally the safety profile, certainly of, of Tazimeltin in the clinical trials when it was all tested um, in great detail, the safety profile was, was very good uh, with, with no major concerns at all. And at least anecdotally for melatonin, um, even though there's been no formal safety analysis, its safety profile does also appear to be fairly, um, uh, to be, to be fairly good with, with similar types of side effect rates. However, having said that, um, there are odd reports and odd, odd cases of people having a, a severe re- reaction to melatonin, an adverse reaction. And so that's why I would encourage anyone wanting to try melatonin to do it with the supervision of their, of their physician, because you don't know that someone isn't going to have an adverse response to it. I have heard of blind people who've gone to a general practitioner with these issues, and the GP will refuse to prescribe melatonin and uh, Hitlios isn't available in in uh, some countries at this point, I believe. Uh, melatonin is pretty widely available if a GP chooses to prescribe it. And th- there is just still, when you get to that level of medical advice, very little knowledge of the issues that blind people face with this. And it can be very frustrating. Uh, people think you're after a sleeping pill and, and quite rightly, uh, there is a reluctance to prescribe such things these days, and you just can't get any traction. Well, that, that, that's a shame, and that's sort of a lack of education on, on the physician's part. Melatonin isn't a sleeping pill. Um, melatonin internally isn't a sleep hormone. It's a darkness hormone. Um, it's not making us go to sleep at all. It's, it's, making us, uh, it's telling the brain it's nighttime, which for us means sleep, but a rat is awake at night, and it still has melatonin at night. Um, and so, first of all, it's not a, a sleeping pill in that regard. It's not addictive in the way that many sleeping pills are. It doesn't have withdrawal in the way that uh, these other drugs do. Um, and it's really there to be a time cue. And that's why it's important to take at the same clock time every day, because you're giving the brain a new time cue to replace the light signal that's been lost. Um, and so, yes, that, that's very unfortunate. I mean, the only thing I can uh, offer to do if, if people listening have that experience write to me and I will write to their doctor um, and send them all the information and put it on Harvard letterhead and see if that makes a difference. And so, um, uh, you know, we're very happy to try and help individuals if, if they're coming up against those types of barriers. 
There are some people who say that um, other sleep aids can help some, but I imagine that, that that's not really dealing with non-24. For example, I know some people say uh, 5-HTP can be a value, magnesium can be a value, but that would apply more to just sleep problems in general rather than non-24, right? Correct. There's no, we don't know of any other substance that can reset the clock except melatonin or melatonin agonist. And people have tried the people have tried sleeping pills before in totally blind people. Uh, we've recently tried to see see if caffeine can reset the clock by taking caffeine at the same time every day, and it doesn't work. Um, other people have tried uh, vitamin B12, and it doesn't work. And so, really, melatonin is the only uh, the the only substance you can take that we're aware of that resets the clock. And that's because there are melatonin receptors on the SCN on the site of that clock, and so we know the mechanism it makes sense that melatonin would be synchronizing. Now, in terms of, of other sleep problems, we, we know that many visually impaired people with light perception still have sleep problems. We, we did a survey many years ago where we showed that uh, between 50 and 60% of uh, blind people with some degree of visual impairment, but, but some light perception had a sleep disorder. But that wasn't uh, non-24 hour sleep disorder. Uh, they were other sleep disorders and we didn't we didn't find out what they were because we were trying to identify people with, with non-24. So uh, there's certainly a high prevalence of sleep disorders in the vision impaired community, and, and that needs a different management. That would be the same for any uh, as any other group um, of people who have insomnia or sleep apnea or shift work disorder or restless leg syndrome or many any of the other 80 or so sleep disorders uh, that exist. And so if you have some degree of light perception, it's a very high chance that you don't have non 24 hour sleep wake disorder, although there are a few people who do. Um, but then those people would go down the typical route uh, that anyone would uh, to try and treat their sleep disorders uh, through, their, through their GP or, or through a sleep clinic. You mentioned that one of the issues with melatonin in the US especially is that it's over the counter and you've got to be careful about what you're getting. And I think one of the key things that I've learned over the years is you just stay right away from animal extract melatonin because there are all sorts of risks there. But if you did get good quality melatonin, uh, pharmaceutically produced melatonin, do you believe that there are benefits in Hitlio's over melatonin, is it somehow a better quality product that's likely to better address non-24 than just regular melatonin? It's a difficult question because there hasn't been a direct study testing melatonin versus Hitlio's. And, and even doing that study is more complicated than it sounds because um, what doses do you compare? So the, the, the Hitlio's dose is 8 milligrams. Um, whereas the melatonin studies have tended to be anywhere from some 0.5 to 10 milligrams, but they have slightly different receptor affinities. They they uh, they interact with the, the the brain in a slightly different way. Um, it, it's it's not a direct test, and so you wouldn't really know to say right, take eight milligrams of heliod and eight milligrams of melatonin, and that would be the test. What you would need is a series of tests to try lots of different doses of melatonin, lots of different doses of heliod. Um, and then see which which of those work, work best. So I, I can't answer the question just because the data don't exist on, on really how directly comparable they are. I can only say that when we've done studies, much smaller studies, uh, you know, really pilot studies, if you like, of a handful of people, uh, you know, seven or 11 or 15 participants, we found more than half of the people would synchronize to a 0.5 or a 5 milligram dose of melatonin. We had a similar rate of people synchronized in a much bigger study, much more carefully controlled, with eight milligrams of, of heliose. And so on the face of it, there doesn't seem to be a great deal of difference. Of course, heliose is a melatonin agonist. It's trying to act like melatonin. So it's not surprising that, that they may be similar. Um, and, and so based on what I know, there doesn't appear to be a major difference. But without a real study uh, directly comparing them, it's really hard to be sure. When we last spoke, and that was a long time ago now, you were embarking on some very interesting studies in this area, and I think you actually got some blind people into a lab right and deprived them of all time cues. You know, no watches, uh, no computer that had a clock on. I think they were allowed talking books and things like that. That must have been a fascinating thing both to study and to be a part of. Yes, that's right. We we did a whole series of studies where we were trying to understand the 
factors that might affect your your internal clock uh, if you don't have light perception. So we're trying to understand how non-light time cues, such as scheduled bedtime, scheduled meal times, uh, showering at the same time every day, having a very regular schedule, could affect our, our internal clocks. And so we, we completed a whole series of studies uh, where we, we brought in uh, totally blind people from anywhere from, from six days to 38 days was the longest study. Um, where yes, you're right, they lived in a, in a time-free environment where we don't give people access to uh, any, any time cues that could affect their clock. Um, and we ran a, a whole series of studies and, and found some very interesting results, in, including one of the ones I, I mentioned early on, is that if you have a clock which is naturally very close to 24, let's say 24.1 or 24.2, your clock may be synchronized by non-photic time cues, like keeping a strict schedule having the same meal time every day, having a, a very regular routine. Uh, whereas if your clock is much longer than that, if you're 24.3 or longer, uh, those non-light time cues are too weak to synchronize. And so many of the people who are totally blind who don't have non-24-hour sleep disorder, we think are people whose clocks are naturally close to 24 and the, the non-light time cues are keeping them synchronized. And so um, that, that was something we learned from those studies by very carefully examining the difference in clocks in people living in the real world uh, versus people living in our controlled lab environment. Yeah. I'm a habitual time checker. I would have found that incredibly challenging to just go on a, a free cycle like that. Uh, so if you are in an environment like I am where essentially – it's, it's it's something that I haven't deliberately done. It just so happens that I've got myself into a position professionally where in some ways the non-24 is an advantage because it does allow me to work with people, say, on the east coast of the United States or, or in Europe uh, in the middle of the night. And I don't feel too bothered about it because I still get my eight to ten hours. I just get it whenever it comes along. Uh, are, there, are there dangers in living life that way if your life allows you to? No, we, we don't think so. We wouldn't say so. I mean, non-24 hour sleep weight disorder is only brought about by people trying to live on a 24 hour day. And so it's a disorder caused by the mismatch of the internal body clock at say 24 and a half hours, trying to live on a 24 hour social day so people can interact with the world around them. If you're able to live on a 24.5 hour day, then great. Um, you're living, you know, in a way that is is naturally timed by your internal clock, and sleep will be good, and, and meals will be taken at uh, the right time because your hunger rhythm uh, will will pop up at the right time, and so on and so forth. So, if you can live on that non 24 hour day, then that will really be ideal. But the vast majority of people can't, unfortunately, and so they have to try and get back to 24 hours, and that's what causes the problem. It's that mismatch between their internal time and the imposed. 24-hour societal time. Do you have any ambitions about what there is left to do in this regard, or is the fact that we now have a, a, an FDA-certified drug, is this pretty much as, as good as it's going to get? There, there's no sort of long-term fix, I take it, that will suddenly cause people to have a, a regular sleep cycle other than taking medication? Well, there, there are... There are research studies ongoing to try and find other things that affect the clock. And so there are other receptors uh, in the clock, and people are trying to find drugs that may affect different pathways to allow us to synchronize our clocks better. They're not being pursued necessarily to treat non-24 hour and blind people, but people are looking for things that could help those who do shift work or help jet lag, where you would want to be able to reset the clock uh, much more quickly uh, than we're currently able to do. And so certainly that is you know, a long way in the future, but people are looking at, at other substances that might uh, do that. And certainly it's been quite satisfying to go from characterizing a disorder. I mean, many people studied blind people before me, but we did a very detailed study uh, when I started my uh, PhD on this. And to go in about 20 years from understanding the disorder to a treatment, you know, I think is pretty rare. Um, and that's quite satisfying that that, that has happened. Um, the downside is that, and I don't know how broadly that's being used. I don't know how accessible those drugs are. You mentioned the cost. Um, you know, so, so obviously there's more work to be done to educate patients, but also to educate uh, primary care practitioners and sleep clinics to make sure that the patients get access uh, to the drug and are diagnosed properly and then treated properly. Certainly we're, we're not 
doing that perfectly at the moment. Um, and, and so more of that outreach, more of that education, I think, is, is key um, so that we can get everyone the treatment that they need. But then that still doesn't address the vast majority of visually impaired people with a sleep disorder who don't have non-24 hour. Uh, that's a whole other set of, of studies um, that really hasn't been explored. And so there's still a lot of people who need help, uh, and that gives us plenty of, uh, of research to do. And I googled on non-24, and there is actually a lot of good quality information out there now. And so it may be sufficient for somebody who is dealing with a, a doctor who just doesn't know about any of this to say Google non-24. Are there any particular websites you might recommend that, that people should be pointed to? Um, I, I haven't got them on top of my head. There is, there's certainly uh, the National Sleep Foundation in the US um, has, has a reasonable page, and I helped them uh, put that together a few years mm. ago. Um, and Vanda Pharmaceuticals, who uh, are the group that develops uh, the Hetlios, they also have an educational website which will have you know, good information on the biological uh, basis of, of this disorder. Um, but um, I just don't have the websites with me, but I can send those to you. That, that's fine. I really appreciate that you've devoted so much of your professional life to this because I think we're all the better for it and for your time on the podcast today. Thank you so much for being a part of it. Thank you. You're welcome. Thanks for listening to The Blind Side, a production of Mosin Consulting. On the web at mosin.org.